Uh, many uh, take credit for the creation and the design of the superannuation system, uh, and arguably most of us in this room are here because of it. Uh, the system of funds management and private wealth investment in this country is estimated to be around $500 billion if it wasn't for super. Instead, it's about $3.5 trillion, uh, $3 trillion of that being within super. So most of us are great beneficiaries of a bipartisan approach uh, and the 1992 kickoff of uh, guaranteed super. One of the three or four people who I think can genuinely take real credit uh, for its design is our next guest. And uh, Dr. Don, uh, as I call him, I've known him as a friend for about 20 odd years, uh, is here in his capacity today uh, as the chair of Australian Super, uh, clearly known to all of you as our largest super fund. Uh, only remaining with that title for a few more months until September, when, uh, hello Rob, uh, in September, Sun Super and Q Super will merge to create a $330 billion organisation. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Don is uh, perhaps lesser known for some of his previous roles to this particular cohort, uh, but uh, when I first met Don, he was uh, the ambassador, in fact, to the United States. Uh, he went across as a very young fella, um, having been Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Paul Keating, and, uh, and got the role to, uh, to be our envoy uh, in the US, uh, and had a lot of interaction at the time with President Clinton and maybe other presidents. Uh, I, was at a, uh, I was in a previous world at that point, uh, publishing a magazine called Encore, which is a film and TV industry magazine. I know it's very, very boring compared to financial services. Um, but I got lots of uh, Hollywood A-list kind of party invites back in that time, and uh, one of them was to, to be with the Consul General's house in Los Angeles uh, during the peak of uh, our film industry, you could argue. It was uh, Muriel's wedding, and it was um, the piano, uh, if you call it Australian film, uh, and, and, and many more of that genre, and uh, our Strictly Ballroom. And so there's this big event happening uh, at the, uh, the Consul General's house, and the, the heads of all of the studios, this is how amazing our industry was at that time, film industry, uh, television industry. Uh, there was uh, six main studios, and the presidents and CEOs of each of those studios were at the Consul's house, and then there were a bunch of cast and crew from those films I just mentioned, uh, and a handful of others, hanger-oners like myself. And then this, uh, this uh, young couple uh, wander through the door, and everyone kind of stops and looks around, and it's like, wow, and there's this dude that's kind of bald even then, uh, with pointy black shoes and steel caps. And it was a, uh, a very young ambassador of Australia just flying up from DC for the, to, to uh, get, uh, uh, hang out with us for the evening, uh, and his uh, barrister wife. Anyway, here he is, uh, Dr. Don Russell. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you for that comment. It's always, it's always good to remember uh, great moments from the past. Um, that was a good time. It really was. Um, the Australian ambassador... Um, does get treated uh, really well. The Americans treat ambassadors uh, considerably better than we treat ambassadors. So, uh, <laughs> it, was, um, it was it was a, it was a great time, and uh, Australia does have um, six or seven uh, consul generals around the country. And one of the responsibilities of the ambassador is to uh, uh, not only just be a face, but to you know actively engage with um, all the consul generals. So. Uh, drew me out of Washington regularly, so uh, so that was all good. Uh, so of course, anyway, look, I'm, I'm really pleased uh, to be here. It's an important time, and uh, what um, what would you like to talk about? Well, <laughs> well, you mainly uh, and your opinions on stuff. But uh, but um, uh, what again, people in this room probably don't know is that you actually know this industry very well. 
Uh, you were, uh, you've also worked on the funds management side. Uh, you worked for San Stanford Bernstein for many years, based in New York City. Uh, you were the chief strategist of BNY Mellon here in Australia for a number of years. Uh, you also, under Prime Minister Gillard, was uh, managed and encouraged back into the public service. You, uh, you ran a third of the public servants in the country under Prime Minister Gillard. Uh, so you've been in a lot of different places, but you've kind of coming full circle, if I can say that, not wanting to put you in a grave early, Don, but you were there uh, as Chief of Staff as a kid, virtually, as Chief of Staff to Keating in pretty extraordinary times. Some would credit that period with the, the greatest period of economic reform our country's ever seen, uh, and unfortunately we haven't seen too much since. Uh, others, uh, of course, would also look at that period and say that superannuation um, and its, uh, the super guarantee being created was uh, was a stroke of, strike of genius, and that, that's coming up to its 30th anniversary in uh, a little while. So I guess the first thing I want to reflect on is what about the super system design you feel has been a success, and, uh, and where has it not measured up to your, your hopes and dreams of 30 years ago? Hmm. Uh, well, well, it's an interesting question, and, and I often get it, and uh, I was actually um, forced to think about all of this uh, in, a, in a fairly um, rigorous way because the, uh, uh, the quarterly essay got me to uh, write a comment on uh, Laura Tingle's uh, piece on, on New Zealand, and uh, I um, focused on uh, you know, one aspect of uh, the comparison between New Zealand and Australia that she didn't get to cover, which was um, essentially retirement income. Policy. I mean, Laura's jumping off point was that Australia and New Zealand are, um, are so similar that uh, where we've chosen to do things differently, it's a, it, you know, a virtually um, amounts to a controlled experiment. So uh, um, our different uh, um, performance in areas where we've made different policy decisions is an interesting counterfactual uh, type analysis. So um, I did focus on um, on the retirement income side. And New Zealand uh, is interesting because uh, they've gone down a different path. Um, we have a, a means-tested pension. They have a, a totally um, universal pension. Uh, we've gone down, uh, as, as we all know, uh, the compulsory um, path with the SG, uh, with tax preference built in. Uh, the New Zealanders have quite deliberately not put tax preference into um, KiwiSaver. KiwiSaver itself is voluntary. So um, there is this quite uh, different uh, um, structure to retirement income in the two countries. So it's sort of interesting to look at how the two countries have evolved and how the, you know, what the consequences are, because uh, it's all very well. We tend to talk in a vacuum. I mean, are we doing well? Are we not doing well? We sort of compare ourselves with ourselves. But I think it is actually quite insightful to look at um, at New Zealand because they are so similar, but they have made different decisions. And I think that the numbers that really jump out of the page and which I put into my comment in the quarterly essay is that the Australian age pension costs uh, around 2.7% of GDP and it's forecast to fall to around about 2.5% of GDP in 2038. Now, the cost of the New Zealand pension uh, in 2015 was 4.8% of GDP, and it's forecast, and this is the New Zealand Treasury, to rise to 6.3% of GDP in 2030 and 7.9% of GDP in 2060. So they are looking at quite a different outlook for the cost of the pension. Now, the pension is also interesting in its own right because our means-tested pension is actually more generous 
than the New Zealand universal, universal pension. And KiwiSaver um, is, a, is a recent um, uh, development, and I suspect it was driven very much by um, a realisation that uh, New Zealand retirees were retiring with inadequate um, levels of uh, income. And with, even with KiwiSaver at the moment, 40% of New Zealanders actually retire with virtually no other income besides the pension. And so the New Zealanders are actually, because um, I actually started reading some of the commentary in New Zealand uh, for the purposes of the, of, the, of the essay and all, absolute um, passion about housing, um, deep concerns that New Zealanders, because of this, are skewing uh, investment in the country away from productive uh, investment. Thank you. And uh, comparisons now more focused on, you know, what is different between KiwiSaver and the SG, a lot of focus on the fact that the SG is compulsory and the KiwiSaver is um, discretionary. But I think what has finally really got their um, attention is that because of the size of the pool of assets that um, the SG has built up now, Australian super funds are actually investing in expanding the New Zealand economy, while New Zealand remains um, predominantly focused and mesmerised with housing. So I think you can take all of that as a sort of ready-made um, sort of comparison of the sort of fundamental macro consequences of um, BSG. And I think we can take a lot of satisfaction because I think if we're looking at the alternative to what uh, Australia would be like if we hadn't passed the legislation in 92, it would be something like New Zealand. And I think you can and you can draw consequences, uh, direct consequences from that. The other aspect um, I think is important to think about is um, competition. One of the you know the key um, key drivers of the structure back in '92 was the belief that competition was a key and important part of um, of retirement income, and and it was a key driver of making sure that the SG uh, delivered benefits. Um, to the community, that we weren't creating a structure which uh, would be hostage to um, you know, rapacious financial services businesses, and that was the uh, that was the origin really of the industry funds. The industry funds were designed to be a disrupt disruptive influence um, to provide competition, and even though they started off as you know uh, embryonic, rudimentary institutions, I think people take a lot of satisfaction that. Um, the industry funds have grown up and have um, delivered on that, you know, original um, belief that competition had to be a key in part of the um, of this great and growing um, retirement structure. Well, I think I think you guys can definitely industry funds can definitely get a score of ten out of ten on that uh, measure. If you're wanting to be a disruptive influence, you've well and truly been that. There's over yes. 1.1 trillion dollars now in industry funds, uh, and it's the fastest growing part of the sector uh, by far. So I'm going to give you, you know, a breath to take water there and get the audience involved, because where I want to take this conversation over the next uh, 13, 14 minutes uh, is, in fact, how advice and guidance uh, distinctly are a part of superannuation or not. Uh, and so where we want to go uh, right now is to get the... You, you, unfortunately, Don, you can't see what I can see. Uh, I can see uh, 100... Uh, 
uh, leaders of today and of tomorrow are all professionals that have uh, circa 15,000 financial planners uh, working for them or, or, or licensed to them or whatever. It's mostly CEOs in the room. Uh, a, uh, they're incredibly good looking. That's a bit you can't see. Very good looking room. Um, and uh, in fact, I've seen them before and I know just how well they are. And, uh, and uh, about 30% uh, or 40% maybe in, even women, which is quite different. Last about 10 years ago, this room was 100% male when we had this conference. Uh, but uh, so there are some, some very some very big improvements. Hello, Sam. Uh, but what we want to do now is get you each involved by doing some polling. And the question we're going to bring up on screen, which we'd like you to each take out your device. I know you've all been missing your devices, so take out your device for a minute. And uh, the question is: Does advice have a role to play in the purpose of superannuation? Does advice have a role to play in the purpose of superannuation? A, strongly agree, B, agree, C, disagree, and D, strongly disagree. So we'll see what the audience thinks on this. And the question I'll flip to you, Dr. Don Russell. Uh, and by the way, you'll be pleased to see uh, we've bought you, I, I took your advice, I bought everyone a copy of your leadership book. Uh, it's on everyone's tables. Uh, and I notice that you obviously don't think we have very much of an attention span. It's a very short read. So uh, I'm sure it's all gold. So everyone in this room will, uh, will read. And, the and there is a section on superannuation. I couldn't. A section on superannuation. I super, couldn't excellent. help myself. <laughs> well, Connexus has gifted a copy to everyone here for, uh, for being here. So thank you. Now, by the way, I'm looking at a screen, which is why I'm not looking at you. I'll look at you sometimes. Otherwise, I'm looking at you on a screen down below. So Don, why don't you, um, we'll keep letting the room score. Yep. Does advice have a role to play in the purpose of superannuation? And the score from this room so far is 73% strongly agree with that statement. 20% uh, agree. That gives us 92%. And some very small number, single digits disagree, and some even strongly disagree. What's your answer, Don? Uh, look, I, I think uh, the answer is yes, we have to. I mean, we, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our members. Um, it's all well and good to say that um, the superannuation as a defined contribution uh, exercise is about the accumulation phase. and um, But I don't think you can um, have members with you for 30 or 40 years um, diligently building up a large asset and then they get to 60 or whenever and then you just wave goodbye to them and, and say, good luck, good luck. Um, this is a very large asset you've accumulated with us and we put a lot of effort in making sure that it's as big as possible, but good luck. Um, I think we have to accept that having built this asset with, the, uh, with our members, we have some responsibilities on making sure that they don't walk out the door with the big pot and hand it to the first person who has you know, a pot of beans to sell them. Uh, now, that, having said that, the challenge then is how do we fund, how do we finance that advice? Um, because we, we are responsible for all our members. And uh, the real issue, I think, is to what extent can you fund advice out of the collective um, wealth of all the members? In other words, can, what can you cross-subsidise legitimately? And, and that, uh, I think, is really at the heart of it. A, you know, sophisticated advice around what an individual member uh, needs in relationship to their subsequent investment behaviour, given their circumstances and the size of their assets, that is very much a personal matter. And I think 
because of the last 10 years, we've got a really, we've got a reasonable handle on that now that, um, you know, sophisticated, uh, comprehensive advice essentially has to be covered by the costs of the member themselves. So that's, that's fine. And, uh, and that has implications for a fund like ourselves. But for the bulk of um, our members, and we've sort of worked on this, we probably have the view that um, maybe 80% of our members are uh, really in the business of needing general or, or guidance, you know, general advice or guidance, you know, often around life events. Um, there's probably only about 10% who um, really need, um, you know, detailed levels of, um, you know, conventional uh, financial planning advice. And there's probably about 10% whose balances are all too small. Now, 10% might not sound much, but when you've got 220 billion of assets and, you know, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3 million members, it's still a, a sizable chunk. So, um, so we've you know, come to the conclusion that as a fund, we need to focus on the 80% when we, when we're talking about, um, you know, guidance or help or general advice or whatever you want to call it. And that's where we have been putting a lot of attention into how we can be helpful for our members and do it in a way which is efficient. Um, because um, as everyone knows, face-to-face -face conversations are expensive, um, but these people do need help. So, so that's, that's a task for us there. The 10% um, of our members who we feel could value, or could be um, helped by uh, you know, comprehensive advice or advice in the traditional sense, uh, we've embraced the notion that the best way of servicing them is to build relationships with, uh, is to essentially outsource it to um, licensees, to uh, financial planning businesses around the country. So we have been actively uh, working to build relationships to to make Australian Super uh, a, um, a financial planner friendly um, organisation to deal with. Um, but we have put structure into that as well, in that um, when we, we have registered uh, financial planners, um, we've probably got about Two and a half thousand registered financial planners. Um, so that's you know a sizable chunk of the. Um, I gather there's probably about sixteen and a half thousand planners. Um, so we register planners, and you know obviously we scrutinise the planners that we register. There's a due diligence process. Um, but on top of that, we have another probably about 150 um, planners who we, we, where they're registered, but they're also certified with us. So the level of scrutiny involvement that we have with the certified planners is, you know, obviously a step up. So uh, we feel that equipped with what we would see as, um, you know, top quality planners, we can service our members in a way that does justice to the members' needs, but does not impose an unwarranted burden on the other members in terms of how it's financed. And I guess uh, in all of that, um, we think we've got the structure reasonably well in that we also have a small number of in-house um, 
planners who are uh, on the payroll. So we feel that, that we've got um, you know, an adequate coverage of, um, of what the members need, but also doing it in a way that um, covers our broader responsibilities. You, okay, well, that's clear, that's clear, Don. Um, first of all, show of hands, who has business with Australian Super, as Don just described? Who's supplying planners to Australian Super clients, referrals? About 15 okay. people in the room, okay. Uh, all right, great. We've got about four or five minutes left. I'd like to take questions from the room if there are any. Yep, please, just to announce your name and organisation. Um, Graham Evans from Eastern Wealth. Uh, Don, a question on the Retirement Incomes Covenant. Um, the biggest challenge I, I think you have as a, as a chair of Australian Super is still stopping people doing stupid things with their money. Um, how, how do we, even though we're going to have um, some, obviously some great innovation over the coming years in respect to Retirement Incomes Covenant, um, how do we stop them doing that? Is it one of those challenges that you've got well and truly uh, on, the, uh, on the plate? It's very much in front of us. Um, you're, you're right. Um, you know, members do take you know quite sizable balances out uh, at 60 and put it in the bank. Um, and it's coming to grips with why they might do that and what we as an organisation can do to nudge them. I mean, we can't. Um, and, th and that's the exercise in front of us. Is is how do we um, develop our communications with our members uh, and encourage them to think in a way that um, is clearly in their better interests. Um, because whatever their motives are about taking the money out and putting it in the bank, um, this is not even just paying off debt. This is just sitting in a fixed income. Um, there are things that they could do which would give them uh, all the flexibility that they're presumably wanting but also deliver them better financial outcomes. So uh, that's the task for us and to find uh, efficient ways of communicating with our members uh, to help them think through, uh, you know, what is an important decision that they make when they get to, you know, 60 plus, um, but to do it in a, in a clever way, which is clearly in their better interest. But it's a challenge. Um, technology is um, where we're hoping uh, we can uh, reap big rewards. So can you say a little bit more about how Australian Super might engage technology, Don? We're about to dive into a session, as you and the audience know, to deepen this conversation with Sun Super and with IFS. But what is Australian Super thinking uh, it will be using in terms of technology to solve that 80% problem? Um, well, we'd, we'd love to think that, you know, there's some sort of artificial intelligence process that would enable... Uh, people to miraculously know more um, by talking to a machine. Uh, I think we've probably got a way to go before we can uh, embrace all of that with some confidence. But I think finding new ways of just communicating with our members and uh, and I'm hopeful that, um, you know, as each cohort enters Australian Super, they are more sophisticated and they actually... Uh, expect to communicate with us um, electronically. They um, almost demand um, to be able to use their phones to um, to communicate. So I think if we can build up a history with them um, where they just look naturally to us and expect 
uh, to be informed and expect to be informed in a you know convenient way. I, I think there's more that we can do over time that will uh, better equip them uh, when they actually have to make the decisions. And I think you know all the current recent scrutiny on super um, has been helpful in that um, even though there's been a lot of um, heat and not, you might think not so much light, although we I think ended up in a reasonable place. I think um, all of that is, in, in, and, and the early release as well, I think has reinforced in people's minds that super is actually quite valuable. Uh, I think there is greater scope if we can continue this um, communication with them is that when the time comes that they will be open um, to suggestion, to being nudged, uh, to do better things. Um, but it's a, it's a difficult business. Well, Don, can you believe it? We've chewed through 25 minutes and we're out of time, uh, but you've set it up nicely for us to deepen this conversation with our next two speakers, panellists, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you uh, for uh, being part of uh, creating superannuation in Australia and, in fact, being um, along with Gary Weaven and Mavis Robinson and um, various others, uh, the creator also, the inspiration for creating industry funds, which has been a really great addition to the landscape. Uh, and, uh, and also for your public service over many decades. And thanks for joining us today. Please put your hands together, Dr. Don Russell. Okay, thanks, Colin. <laughs>